0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, um, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Okay, we're going to talk today about fighting for unity. I hope you sense the, you know, the, the uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, the contrast there, fighting for unity. So I, I grew up in my house And uh, I was really blessed. My parents took me to church every single week. And when I say my parents, I mean my mom. She took me to church every single week. And uh, that was such a blessing. My mom also taught good news clubs. So every single Friday, she invited all the kids in the neighborhood over. And they would come. She would do all these flannel graph stories and share the gospel with kids. And so I had prayed to receive Christ as a kid. You know, by the time I was in high school, I'd probably play, prayed to receive Christ like 400 times. And, uh, but the, the fact is I was not a Christian. And uh, I prayed to receive Christ, but what it came down to, I understood the gospel. I understood my need, but I was never willing to submit to Jesus. I really was never willing to follow him. I didn't want to go to hell, and I knew that that was real. And uh, I remember uh, when I'm in high school some friends of mine came over to the house and they just said, hey, Rod, you want to go hang out with us? And so uh, basically we spent our, our time doing things that were really bad, really destructive. It is a miracle that I am still here. And I remember my parents, they kind of had this sense that whatever they're going to do tonight is probably not a good idea. And so they said, no, Rod, you can't go. And um, so... My friend's standing at the door. My parents say I can't go with them. So I just kind of leaned out the door, and I said, come back in an hour. Meet me up at the corner. And I shut the door and went in the house. And uh, this was before the days of cell phones, so I couldn't text him when I was ready. I had to pick a time to actually meet. And so I went into the house. My parents are in there. And, and the house that I grew up in, my dad was not a believer, and our, our house was very tumultuous. There was like really serious conflict all the time. I feel like I can remember the good days of my parents' marriage. I feel like I could count them on my fingers and toes. And so I go into the living room, and uh, I just kind of said a few things. I brought up a few contentious topics. And within probably 10 or 15 minutes, my parents are in such heated conflict. Man, they are fighting with each other. It was radical. And uh, I went to my room, closed the door, climbed out the window, hopped the fence, met my friends up at the corner, and uh, probably came home at like 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Nobody ever knew I was gone because my parents, who were supposed to be guiding me, caring for me, giving me direction, were fighting. And... uh, and I actually instigated that. And what's sad <laughs> is how easy it was to instigate. So when you hear that story, the thing that uh, you should think about is, first of all, um, I was a tool in Satan's hands. Um, what I really needed as a kid, what was in my well-being, were parents who were focused, having their attention, a where it needed to be, And when they told me I couldn't go, there were some good reasons for that. And they should have been paying attention to that. And actually, I needed their attention and their care. What I needed most was to not go do the things that I was going to go do that night. And so um, that is something, conflict, unity. We're going to be talking about conflict. And unbiblical conflict, a lack of unity, is damaging. It is destructive. And it is one of the main things. It is one of Satan's main tools. And uh, when we're not Christians, like I wasn't, or if we are disobedient Christians, we become pawns in Satan's hand. One of the things that I thought about, like, as our kids were growing up... You know, our family was not, <laughs> our family was not like angels sitting on clouds playing instruments. You know, we had, you know, we had plenty of difficulties and trauma in our family. I would assume, like everybody had. But one of the things that we tried to do is we were, we tried to think about conflict in a biblical ways and to understand, hey, when when I'm having conflict with my kids about things, um, if we're not careful, sometimes there's things we need to have conflict over. Sometimes there's battles, like somebody wants to do something wrong, and you're saying, no, you're not allowed to do something wrong, and that can create difficulty. But if we don't deal with those things correctly, we don't end up where God wants us to be. Now, the Corinthian church is a perfect example of, like, inappropriate conflict and what Satan did. And actually, that's what Paul is writing this whole letter. Like, so far, we've been looking at, the gospel, the significance of salvation, how people become Christians, and Paul has been addressing this conflict in the Corinthian church that they've been having, this lack of unity. And so we're going to be addressing that this morning. Um, the, the the Corinthians were a group of people who got saved from a terrible city. It was so wicked. It was, it was like the Las Vegas of their day. And the fact that that these people were sitting in the Corinthian church and, and they had come from completely debauched lives. Like when you think about everything wrong with our culture, if you were to go to the worst part of Portland, the worst part of, of, of uh, San Francisco, if you, if you were to go find where is a place in the United States where it is just debauched and sinful, Paul went to a place like that. He preached the gospel and people with every single serious sin issue got saved. And they're coming to church. And it is amazing. And they did not spend their life being trained and creating habits of godliness. They had spent their life being trained and having habits of sinfulness. And so they're all in church together and And guess what happened in the church? They had lots of problems. And so Paul's going to address all of this stuff. And we're going to see in chapter 4, Paul's going to address unity. And he's going to talk about how serious it is and the fact, like our passage this morning ends with Paul saying, I'm coming with a rod of discipline if you don't deal with these unity issues. Or I'm going to come in love and grace if you do. And then in chapter 5, we're going to be looking at a person in the church with serious sin issues in his life, and the church didn't address it. And Paul has to write to them and say, you address this sin issue. A person with serious problems who needed rescue. (laughs) I think to myself, I'll bet a lot of the reason why that person wasn't getting the rescue they needed is because everybody was fighting about stupid things. And that is always what happens in churches. That is what happens in ministries, and that is what will happen in your family if you don't deal with conflict the way God says we need to deal with conflict. If you don't think about people and about life the way God tells you to think about people in life, you will miss your calling. You will fail to do the things that God intends for you to, to, to do. Your family will not produce what God intends it to produce. And that's Satan's plan. So shall we jump in here and look at some of this stuff? I want to just read uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And a lot of this is really significant that we think about life the way God tells us to think about it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we're going to see four things this morning. If I get to all four, if not, we'll see two or three, and, but hopefully we'll get to all four. The first one is this. Unity flows from living according to Scripture. God has not left us here to figure things out for ourselves. He tells us exactly how to think and what to do. The second thing is that unity flows from specific attitudes and actions. And Paul is going to list some things in our passage that if you think about applying those, you're going to think it's crazy and impossible. But what I want you to know is it's not crazy. It's not impossible. It's actually a necessity. And uh, this is no shock. Unity is protected by a love for one another. And unity is worth fighting for. Uh, it is something that is critical. So those are the four things that we're going to look at. Um, so let's read, and I want to start by just uh, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the section that, Paul, uh, that Craig taught on last week. 1 Corinthians 4 1 says, This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And Craig talked about how the mysteries was the church. It's the gospel. It's how God is going to work through Jews and Gentiles to reach the world. We are stewards of something of eternal significance. And when we don't deal with unity correctly, we miss out on handling things that are of eternal value properly verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And Craig did a great job of talking about how stewards are the under rowers, and I think that's the most significant thing. We'll never have unity when we think we are the most important ones, when we don't realize, no, I'm here to serve, and I am here to obey. I'm here to obey God. And if we don't understand that, we'll never be who God wants us to be. And he says in verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And uh, so uh, that's a very important foundation. And so let's jump into verse 5. Unity, here's our first point. Unity flows from living according to Scripture. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation. You know, God's looking at our heart, and unity actually flows out of our hearts. And so he's looking at these Corinthians, and he's reminding them, God's going to say some really important things, really some really important things about unity, and God knows what's in your heart. And uh, one of the things that is always, um, I-, I hear many people say uh, things like, oh, God knows my heart. And sometimes they say, God knows my heart, And it's in reference to a heart that's expressed in sinful behavior. Uh, But God knows my heart. And one of the things I think about is the thought that God knows my heart, hey, sometimes that could be comforting. But often that's not very comforting because we're selfish. We're self-centered. And even when we're doing the right thing, sometimes we're doing it for the wrong reason. And I was thinking about this passage in Hebrews 12, And it just talks about God's Word and how God's Word allows us and helps us to evaluate our heart. And we're going to see this emphasized in a few verses. Um, But God's Word actually measures our hearts. And uh, often I know what my heart is because I look at my behavior. (laughs) I compare that with God's Word and I go, maybe there's something wrong with my heart. But this is what it says, uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. (laughs) And this is what I think is funny. We really need to read the next three verses because the response to the fact that God sees our heart is not, oh, wonderful, I'm, I'll, I'm good. As long as God sees my heart, I'm cool. The thought that God knows your heart should be terrifying, and it is terrifying. And that's what I love about the next three verses in Hebrews. It says, since, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God knowing your heart should be terrifying, but it doesn't need to be because of Jesus. And it's not because you're righteous and holy and always do the right thing. It's because God sees your weakness. He sees that. But because of Jesus, we have mercy and grace. And so uh, that's something that, man, God knowing our motives. Look at verse 6. Paul has been talking about, Apollos and, and, uh, and, all, and the conflict and person saying, I'm of, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. You know, people, I'm of Peter. You know, people saying all these things in this division. And then Paul's going to say this in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So he's basically just saying to them, you need to learn to do exactly what Scripture says. And you need to learn by us. Like that's actually the thing about Paul and about Apollos is they read Scripture and they obeyed it. They were a living picture of obedience to Christ. And what he's saying to them is you're having all this conflict, you're having all this division, but you need to learn not to go beyond what is written. I want to just talk for a second about um, the significance and sufficiency of Scripture. Um, There are often times when churches struggle. And so they go to a conference to some really large church and say hey, somebody who's successful and huge, come tell me, how should I do things? Or they grab some leadership book and go, hey, let's find some principles from this really rich person in the secular world and let's ask him how to build something big and let's, let's in the church try to apply all these principles. If the church has problems, the very, our very first stop should be Scripture. What does God say we're here for? How does God say we're supposed to do this? If somebody's family is having trouble... Often what people will do is say, well, hey, the Bible this, the Bible that, but I've got a serious problem. I need to go to a psychologist, a, a, a psychiatrist. Um, I need medication to solve my problem. I need, I need some, some advice from an expert. Let me find somebody with a Ph.D. and who has all the stuff in their life, and let me ask them what I should do. Because... All the insignificant problems, well, those can be handled in church. But if you have a serious problem, if, if you're suicidal, if you're, if you're having some major issue in your life, go to an expert. And what I want you to know is that God is the expert. And the solution to everything we need in our life is found in Scripture. And, and we don't go to people who have great, bright ideas who don't that don't follow scripture we don't go to non-christian experts and say tell me how to live um, and that's not to say that there is does not help with medication that is not to say that non-christians have nothing helpful to offer in any area but when you go to a non-christian counselor when you go to a psychiatrist Some people have, in those fields, they have learned so much. They have studied so much. They have met with so many people. They've tried to help so many people. And they've learned some really important things. And so you'll sit with them and they'll tell you eight things. Two of them are good and five of them are absolutely destructive. And if you're not a person of the word, you won't know which one to listen to and which one to ignore. And so that's why our first stop is always Scripture, And we don't go beyond what is written. I mean, Proverbs tells us that, right? Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, it's the way of death. You know, (laughs) okay, I'll just stop. I was going to talk about Freud for a second. We're going to move on. Um, The Bible tells us, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word tells us what to go. Where to go. Our problem is not that Scripture is not enough. Our problem is that we don't know what it says and we don't obey what it says. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says that we are to be diligent to presu- preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, as we look at this passage, um, he says that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. And then look at the last sec- uh, part of verse 6 that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What what are Satan's two favorite tools? I really think they're pride. Uh, That's why he got cast out of heaven. Pridefulness, thinking the world revolves around us, thinking that we're right and everybody else is wrong. Um, Satan uses that to manipulate and drive people. So it's pride and it's, Division, being puffed up with one against another. Now, I was thinking about this in um, our family. You know, pride can destroy. And we're not to be prideful toward one another. We're not to divide. We're all on each other's team. And uh, that was one of the most important things I was trying to work on in our family as our kids were growing up, is, is you'll have people who think that loyalty means you keep other people's secrets or loyalty is that you cover for sin or if I'm really loyal you know and, and I so I from the time my kids were young this is one of the blessings I had is I was a youth pastor for like 20 years so I got to see how teenagers live their life and all the destructive things that happen in their life and all the destructive things that happened in my life And so when I was parenting my kids, one of the things I thought about is some of this stuff's really hard to teach. I get this 18-year-old or a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old, and I'm trying to teach them to think about being unified and how the body of Christ is supposed to function. And it's really hard to be a voice and in two hours a week transform what somebody's been learning and living for like 16 years. And then when they go home, sometimes those things aren't actually even enforced. They're discouraged, and they're like, it's a counterexample of what it's supposed to be. And so my family, when my kids were three, uh, as soon as they could talk, I would say, hey, when you, when you, when you, one day when you get older, mom and dad will tell you who to marry. So I'm like, how do, how do we solve this whole dating thing when they're three, you know, planting those thoughts? Michelle used to say to our kids, like, when when we brought Julianne home, one of the first things she started saying to Jessica is, that's your sister, that's your best friend. You ever see siblings that have all these conflicts with each other? Our kids, before they could barely talk, were being told, this is your best friend. You love your best friend. And, and I was teaching my kids that we're a family. We're all in this together. Our, our goal is the spiritual well-being of each other. And I remember times that When I was disciplining my kids and we were having struggles and we had some serious conflicts, in fact, we have a picture of me and John standing in the entry of our house. And he's just sitting there and he's so angry and I'm just hugging him and his angry face over the shoulder. And Michelle took a picture of it. And uh, we took a picture the other day in our house, except he wasn't mad. We were just loving each other. But I remember in some of those times we're having such serious conflict with each other about really important things and attitudes and things that we were working on. Um, Michelle, John was so angry at me, and actually every single one of my kids at one point or another has been so angry at me. And Michelle would go sit down and go, hey, let's talk about that. And would be an encouragement, would be a help. There were times that one of my kids wouldn't listen to me They wouldn't listen to Michelle. And so we would go to siblings and we'd say, hey, we're praying for your sibling. This is something that they're struggling with. Will you pray for them and will you talk to them? And and often it wasn't actually me or Michelle that shifted the direction they were going. Like Jackson would have a terrible attitude. Jackson's watching this morning. I saw him click in online for Virginia. Hey, Jackson. (laughs) I'm going to tell more stories about you now that you're not here. But he would sit down and talk, and Jessica would talk to him, and his attitude would completely change. He would see the thing that he needed to to see, but it's because we were all working toward the spiritual well-being of each other. But what would happen if me and Michelle had so much conflict that when one of my kids got mad at me, she liked it, and she encouraged it? Or if our kids were in rebellion against us, And when we're trying to address an issue in one of our kids' lives, they go into their room, and they have this internal desire to do what's wrong. So it's already hard to help. And we're giving them advice they don't want to hear. And if they go into the back room, and now there's four kids sitting around, and they're all getting together talking about how mom and dad are idiots, and they're encouraging each other to walk down a sinful path. And that is these kinds of things, they happen in homes and they happen in churches, and all of that stuff is, God, is Satan's desire to destroy and to distract and to keep people from accomplishing what God intends them to be and to accomplish. We are not puffed up in favor of one against the other. Nobody in the body of Christ, no Christian is against another Christian. Sometimes we're frustrated. Sometimes we have conflicts. We are not against each other. It's so important. Now look what it says in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received if then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? And Paul's just identifying. They think they're so great and so talented, and they think this person's gifted and talented. And Paul's just saying, actually, you have nothing that God didn't give you. And so he's, he's pulling away the reasons for pride, and he's just telling them, you need to be unified. Look at uh, um, the second thing in verse 8 through 13. Unity flows from specific attitudes and actions. This is the single most important advice that I give every married couple who's struggling. Like I have sat in my office for hours with people who hate each other, who have such intent, intense feelings of hostility where, where you cannot sit with a person and the most dominating thing in their mind is how, is how bad the person they're married to is. And, and you sit with this couple, with this individual, and that's what you hear. You sit with this individual, and that's what you hear from them. You put them in the same room. Like I've been unable sometimes to get through conversations because people can't. They, they Even sitting in front of me, you think like an outsider that people would fight less intensely. But, but there's times that, that I'm sitting in a room with a married couple that has such intense conflict, they actually cannot even communicate at all. It's hard to get anywhere because they just want to insult each other, and they're so angry. And what the Bible tells us, and Paul's going to identify it, there are specific actions that lead to unity. And they're not confusing, but they are very hard to do. And uh, this verse, but love your enemies. Uh, Our spouse is not our enemy, right? (laughs) Our kids are not our enemies. But I'm just telling you this verse needs to be applied in marriage. This verse needs to be applied in church because it is often, that the people who love you and who you love, it feels like they're your enemy. And, and often for me, if a stranger does something terrible to me, it's way less upsetting than if Michelle does something that I perceive as terrible. Man, the people that are closest to us can hurt us most deeply, right? And so this is what the Bible says. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God just says, be good to your enemies, because God is good to his enemies. So if we're Christians, we're supposed to be like God, which means we're good to our enemies. Now, it's interesting to me how Paul is going to reframe the Corinthians' thinking. And this is something that's super important. Um, It is sometimes our emotions are so intense, we say to ourselves, I'm going to do something evil it is evil and i don't care because i want to hurt this person i'm so angry at them and and it's wrong but i don't care if it's wrong Um, sometimes we live like that but i would say most of the time we feel justified in the things that we do and say our minds explain to us that what we're doing is appropriate I need to really lay into my husband because he needs to learn that this behavior is not acceptable. If I let my wife get away with this, she's just going to do it all the time. I need, to, I need to make some boundaries so that that doesn't happen. And uh, often we think that way. And we need our thinking. And by the way, that's what Satan does. Like go to the Garden of Eden. He explains to Eve... How disobeying God will be good for her, and it's pretty logical. Like when you read the argument, he uses the fallacy of equivocation. um, Just where he says you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil, and they are going to be like God, knowing good and evil, but they're not going to know good and evil the way God knows good and evil. So it's a it's a change in definition of the word, because God's not guilty. That's not how God knows good and evil. They're going to be guilty which is why they're going to know good and evil. And so he, he makes this statement that is so logical, but that is not true. And often our sin is rationalized and very logical. So this kid comes to me in youth group one year, and he just says, man, my parents, they're picking my friends, and it's just so upsetting, and that's so wrong. They shouldn't pick my friends. I should be able to pick my own friends. And and my parents are so unreasonable, and I can't stand them. They're so controlling. And um, his argument sounds very logical, right? I mean, shouldn't you be able to pick your own friends? Like, we don't let other people pick our friends. So I just said to him, I said, well, hey, tell me about your friends. Like, your, your parents are concerned about this. What What's the thing that they're concerned about? And he's like, well... Um, these friends of mine, they struggle with drugs, and they do this kind of stuff. My, friends are, my parents are afraid if I hang out with them, I might start doing drugs. Oh, okay. And, and my friends also, they're uninterested in school, and a lot of them are failing out of school. And my parents are afraid that if I hang out with them and do the stuff that they're doing, it's going to not be good for my education. And I said, oh, okay. So yeah, I guess your, your parents, if you really took a step back and thought about it, Your parents don't want you to be on drugs. Why do you think they don't want you to be on drugs? Well, drugs are super destructive. They could really harm people. And I'm like, yeah, man, you know, you have pretty mean parents. (laughs) They don't want your life to be destroyed by drugs. And they want you to be able to get a good education so that you can get a job and support a family. Oh, my goodness, your parents are so mean. (laughs) And this kid's looking at me, and all of a sudden he's starting to think about this differently. That's called reframing. And that's actually what Paul does with the Corinthians. Let's read that and see how he's going to reframe what seems very logical to them. He's going to show them that it's actually not that logical. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, as last, last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He's saying everybody sees the mistreatment, the lowly status we have, but you, you are kings. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. And so all of a sudden, Paul starts laying this out. He is the apostle, but he's servant-hearted, and they have become so arrogant. And actually, they're, they're criticizing Paul they said things like oh he's so powerful in speech but in presence he's weak and and they're saying all these things about him and he kind of just takes all that and reframes it for them and uh, describes it as it really is creates this contrast so that they can look at it and go no actually the things we're doing are not good and then he's going to give a list of what he does and I just want you to know this every person needs to pay attention to It is the second half of verse 12 and the first half of verse 13. This is a list of actions that happened to Paul and how he responds. And just so you know, this is what you need in your family. This is what you need in your relationships with other people. This is what you need in the church. And this is not what you will hear if you go to most psychiatrists and psychologists trying to get help resolving your conflicts. You go to marriage counselors, um, unless they're Christians, they will not give you this list. But this is the list that God gives. And there's two elements about lists that God gives. Number one, they're required. It actually doesn't matter if you think it's good for you or not. That is insignificant. When God, the king of the universe, tells you to do something, you do it. What is the foundational part of being a Christian Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you love your life, you cannot be my disciple. If you love your brother, sister, mother, father more than me, you cannot be my disciple. The the foundational part of being a Christian, and this is why I never got saved growing up, was the foundational part of being a Christian is to say, God, you are the king. You are the ruler of the universe. You have the right to tell me what to do. Also, you know everything, so you're the smartest person, and you know what's best, even if I don't think it's best. And also, you're good. So everything you tell me is what's best for me, even if it doesn't seem like it, which is why when you go to your psychiatrist or you go to your friends or you flip on the TV and you're watching Oprah, um, that whatever you hear that contradicts scripture is wrong. And so let's read this list. This is a, um, man, this is a devastating list (laughs) to read. If you actually know what this says, uh, you'll feel overwhelmed by it. So let's read it. It says, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we we endure. When we are slandered, We entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So the first thing that you see in the Apostle Paul is like he's working, he's going through all these things. He is willing to suffer and labor for Christ. But the other thing is he is committed to returning good for evil. You know what reviling is? You know, reviling is what they did to Jesus. Reviling is when you attack and harm and hurt somebody with your words. It's verbal abuse. It is talking to somebody in a contemptuous or scornful way. It is insulting somebody. That's what reviling is. And when we are reviled, we bless. Um, To bless is to pray for the well-being of. It is to confer favor or blessing. It is to try to graciously benefit. It is to act in kindness. Um, It is to desire somebody's well-being. Now, this is the, the, why that is so amazing and powerful. If I walk up to you and slap you super hard, what's going to hurt more, your face or my hand? Your face, right? If you slap me, what will hurt more? My face. Often when we revile and insult and harm other people, we don't even notice. Like I've had people say, man, you talked to me in a really mean way. I didn't even notice. It's because they're the ones who were hurt. And so often you'll get two couples that are married, and this person says, oh, man, this person I, I live with is so, um, so verbally abusive. They're so emotionally abusive. Probably true. And they could make you a list of a 1,000 ways this other person has emotionally abused them. But if you get that other person, um, they could make a 1,000 ways that this other person has emotionally abused them and has been so verbally abusive. And the problem is that each person has their own list. Each person's really aware of what the other person did wrong. And so sometimes you have two people who are both sinfully behaving toward each other, but they're both convinced that the other one's wrong, not them. And that's what now you think about if that's true or if you're the mean one and your spouse is not mean or vice versa, what brings a solution to any situation, this. Two people are evil toward each other, this helps. One person who's evil to, to an innocent, innocent spouse, this helps. This helps no matter what's happening. And um, we bless, we pray for, we encourage. Uh, persecute. That is to relentlessly pursue with the intention of harming, of causing pain. I thinking about... Um, how this can be Proverbs twelve eighteen, there is one who is rash with his words, like words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So one person stabbing another person if you have a wise tongue it brings healing. How about this? A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends you ever had a relationship with somebody? This has happened to me. I have a good relationship with somebody and nothing in my relationship with them has changed, but all of a sudden one day they're mad at me. Have you ever had that happen to you? Um, And Satan is working all the time to divide people. And following these things overcomes any plan Satan has. Um, We endure. That is to have self-restraint. Tolerance, patience. It is to bear with someone. Um, that's what God intends. How about slander? That's when somebody says something false and damaging about somebody. Um, so have you ever been slandered? remember <laughs> one time um, there was a person, that not, not here, but I, I was seriously slandered. And I was slandered to some people who actually impacted my life. There were people that I cared about. And I knew that there was a person really angry with me and slandering them. And um, slandering me. And uh, that's happened to me several times. One, one time it happened in a, in my, uh, before I was working in ministry. Another time it was really serious and it happened to me when I was in ministry. Um, when I was working in a secular field, I worked as an electrician. And I got paired up with my boss's son who happened to be um, very lazy. And... Uh, one of the things we would do is his dad would send us to this house that we were supposed to wire this house and do the electrical work. And we should have been getting two houses a day done. And we would drive up to that house. He would drop me off. And then and this is like I've been working there for a month, so I don't actually know that much how to do. But, but he would leave me there, and he would go get his tires changed. He's gone for like four hours in the day. And so I would do everything I knew how to do. And then there was, like, this other group of electricians on the other uh, in a house next door, and I didn't know what else to do. I'd just so hey, could somebody come tell me what to do? And then they would say, okay, drill drill holes here, run this kind of wire from this place to this place. And so I would do that, and then we would get that house finished up at the end of the day. What I didn't know is we would go home, and he would say, uh, his dad said, hey, how come you only got one house done today? You guys should be getting two houses done. He would say, "Oh, Dad, it's it's really tough working with Roger. He has these emotional swings, and sometimes he'll just sit in the truck and he just won't get out of the truck. He just won't work." And so he's telling his dad that. And I remember one <laughs> one time we're loading the truck with materials, and his dad walks out and says, "Hey, Roger, you got to learn to just be stable. You got to work hard every day. You sometimes you can't work fast one day and slow another day. You need to be consistent." <laughs> I'm like, no, actually I'm consistent every day. And I started figuring out what was going on, and you know what I did? I just prayed about it. My like, God, you know the truth. And the Lord ended up taking care of that situation. But you know, often we can feel like there's people out there slandering us. And you know what I and especially in Christianity, I don't feel a, nece- a necessity to clear up my reputation. There's people who have slandered me, and I just think actually, that's a friend of mine, I know that somebody's slandering me to them. But it's their job when they hear that, if they're concerned about it, to come talk to me. And if they don't do that, that is between them and God. I'm just going to work on being faithful. And the Lord is taking care of me in those situations. What's our response to slander? To answer kindly, to respond graciously, to be helpful and encouraging, to respond to slander with kindness and truth. Why? Why? Because that's what God calls us to do. And that's really hard if you ever feel like you're losing. And often in marriages and things like that, that's how it can feel. Here's a third thing. So that's a list. You guys should write down those things and practice creating those habits. And you know what? We'll stop there. I think that's enough for today. We'll jump into these next couple points next week. You know, as I think about these things, um, the things that God has called us to are so important. Unity is significant. We need to be aware when Satan is attacking us. And we need to remember ultimately that we live life before the Lord. And I just want you to know that these habits, these things, they don't just happen naturally. We have to know what God says and we have to systematically work on creating these habits in our life. And when we do that, God will give us a very powerful, very effective ministry. And you want to know something else? We will be blessed. The times that I've responded to people in my family with harsh words and they've responded with love, man, that has been so much better than when I say something harsh to somebody and they say something harsh back. We are blessed when we obey God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your guidance. God, I thank you for this church, the way we love each other. Uh, Lord, the way that we work hard on things that are of eternal value. And Lord, life is always messy and none of us always handles everything correctly. And we all trip and fall. And that's just life. That's the way things go. God, I pray that you would help us to be aware of our own weaknesses, that that would make us gracious and merciful toward others. And, Lord, I just thank you for the love that we have and the mission that you have called us to. God ask that you would help each of us to grow in these things in your name. Amen.